I heard they have snacks down there. <laughs> All right, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the feeling in the air, and I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here with us. I thank you that you do not abandon us. You do not leave us alone. When you ascended back to heaven, you didn't say, all right, have fun. But you are with us. You sent us your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be with us, not only to walk alongside of us, but to walk within us, to experience every situation and trial and and joy and high and low and everything that we experience in this life right along with us. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals so much truth, so much hope, so much peace, so much joy to us. I pray that you would bless our time this morning, that your word would go forth, that lives would be changed, and we would walk out this place different people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think everyone here can agree that the America we now live in is deeply divided. Unfortunately, many of these divisions are along racial and socioeconomic lines, and many are along topics related to the country's future. Like, if I, if I said, who wants to talk about climate change? I'd just be inviting oh, a, 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 a trouble, right? If I wanted to say, let's talk about health care, I'd be inviting trouble. If I said, let's talk about education, I'd be inviting trouble. In fact, in an article published by the Pew Research Forum in March of 2019, just this past year, only one survey topic yielded a majority of agreement between all adults surveyed, whether Republican or Democrat or whatever your partisan leaning is. This this is just, I don't know, I laughed at this. This one topic of agreement, majority, was that in 30 years, the year 2050, 65% of those adults surveyed said the country would be even more divided than it is now. That's the one thing they could agree on. (laughs) And even then, did you hear that number? It was only 65%. So even then, there was still, what, 35% who disagreed with that? And so... Even on a topic that in 30 years do you think the country will be even more divided, only 65% had the majority of agreement, and that was the one topic, only one topic that, any, that anybody majorly agreed on. God has given a beautiful gift to not only us as believers in Jesus, but also ideally as a light and as an example to this broken dark and deeply divided world. And what is that? That gift is the unity of the church. The unity of the body of Christ. Unfortunately, we also haven't done a very good job of preserving that unity over the past 2,000 years. Some of this division was necessary to combat heresy, doctrinal error, and corruption, But the universal church today still sadly struggles with some of the same sources of division that the church in Corinth struggled with 2,000 years ago. 
We took a bit of a break from our, like I mentioned, we took a bit of a break from our, from our first Corinthian series over the course of the Advent season and the start of a new year. But this morning, we're jumping right back into this series. Today, we're going to see that the church, 2,000 years ago, struggled with the same things as we still struggle with today. So Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church and the early church as a whole is every much as relevant and every much as needed to us today. And hopefully we might learn something from it, whereas maybe the Corinthian church didn't 2,000 years ago. Because we've been away from this series for a while... Before we jump into these two verses, I just want to give a little bit of general review of the Corinthian church as we've seen in this series, what they've struggled with and what Paul has already had to correct and instruct them in. So the first point that we come to is the review. If you're taking notes, you can, uh, you can write down the review, but also write down some of this review too. The city of Corinth, you'll see here, this is uh, uh, just a snapshot of the ancient Roman Empire here. You, you'll notice some cities on here you, you'll, you'll be familiar with. Philippi, Thessalonica, here's Mount Olympus, Athens, Greece, and down here on this little strip of land here between Greece and this Achaean Peninsula is what they call, is the city of Corinth there. The city of Corinth was the capital city of the region of Achaia, as one biblical scholar pointed out, it was in the geographical location, as you can see there, that used to be ancient Greece. Therefore, Roman and Greek cultures often coexisted there, and often not so much coexisted there. Sometimes they fought. You can see here that Corinth sat on what was called the Corinthian Isthmus here. Right there, that little strip of land in between Athens and this Achaean Peninsula. It sat right on that very thin piece of land there. This very thin stretch of land provided merchants a way to get from Rome, which was over here, uh, to, to, and the rest of Italy over to Asia Minor, which is over here, without having to sail around this treacherous bottom of the Achaean Peninsula here. It was pretty treacherous to sail around that. So they would bring their ships here, bring their goods across this very tiny stretch of land, and then move on to the rest of Asia Minor. And as it was, it, because it sat where it sat, it was a very major trade city in the Roman Empire. And as it was a major trade city, Corinth was also one of the most diverse cities in the Roman Empire. And that's very important to remember as we work our way through this letter that Paul writes to the church. Not only was Corinth one of the most ethnically diverse cities, but because of its importance to merchants, Corinth was also one of the most socioeconomically diverse cities in the empire. You had very, very rich people living in the city of Corinth, and you also had very, very poor people that also lived in the city of Corinth. And it's from that environment you think America is a melting pot. It's from that environment that the Corinthian church was formed. It didn't just come out of nowhere with a homogeneous uh, co congregation. It's from that incredibly diverse, both eth ethnically and socioeconomically, uh, environment that the Corinthian church was formed. So obviously all of that diversity in the city made up an incredibly diverse church. 
It's just only natural. So what that brought with it, unfortunately, was tension and division in connection with a whole range of topics. One of the greatest things the Corinthian church struggled with was self-centered arrogance. If you want a name tag that the Corinthian church could wear that said, hello, my name is, and then you would write on there, it would say self-centered arrogance. That's what the Corinthian church was known as. And that is seen most clearly in their struggles with division in the church. We've talked extensively about a lot of these topics of division already. One of these sources of division was different mini-camps of loyalty towards different church leaders that they liked better. One was devoted to Paul. One was devoted to Apollos, possibly Peter. And then there were those who saw no reason to listen to anything any church leader instructed. Paul's remedy for that division was the antidote to self-centered arrogance, and that is what? starts with an H. Humility. He says in the first four chapters of this letter, if you want a summary of the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's this. Our salvation and spiritual growth has nothing to do with church ministers, and it has absolutely nothing to do with ourselves. Nothing. Our salvation has everything to do with God. Everything and only to do with God. He's the one who came up with the plan that was purposely designed to not make any sense to human wisdom. So it's no wonder that the most brilliant minds in our world say that God doesn't exist. That, that should come as no surprise to us because we're told in God's word that God purposely designed salvation through Jesus to be foolishness to them. He's the one who came up with, he's the one who fulfilled that plan that, that plan that can only be understood by the spiritual opening up of our eyes. He's the one who fulfilled that plan by coming to earth himself in the form of a man to pay the price for our sin. A plan only goes so far unless there's a fulfillment to it, unless it actually takes place. And he's the one who calls us to put our faith in that salvation by drawing us to him by the Holy Spirit's movement in our hearts. It's only and everything to do with him. Nothing to do with us. So then it's not human ministers who cause any spiritual growth in anyone. It's God. He's the one who increases faith. He's the one who leads us through different trials to stretch our faith and to grow it. And he's the one who grows the fruits of the what? Spirit within us. Next, the Corinthian church's self-centered arrogance led them to not only accept a congregant's blatant and disgusting sexual sin, but to celebrate it. Their so-called and empty source of unity was really a rebellion against the word and commands of God. That might have been the only thing that they were unified in, and it was actually rebellion against the word and commands of God. Paul rebuked any form of sexual immorality in the church by bringing up this topic of unity once again in chapters 5 through 6. But in the form of saying, why on earth would you think that your physical bodies as members of Christ's body are perfectly okay in joining with sexual immorality? 
That is, any sexual relationship that's outside the bonds of marriage that God created the blueprint for in Genesis between one man and one woman. No, your physical bodies have been bought by Jesus' blood. They're not yours anymore. Sorry to tell you, when you commit your life to Jesus, your body is not your own anymore to do with as you please, to do with whatever you want to. Your physical body even, not just your spiritual self, not just your soul, but your physical body has also been bought by Jesus' blood and therefore is joined with him and the rest of the church in his body. After addressing that grievous sin, Paul addressed other sources of division in the church in chapter 7. Those having to do with marital status and earthly socioeconomic status. What he did with marital status is that he elevated singleness for the kingdom of God to the same level as marriage. Out of the Jewish cultural view that said singleness was a curse, while promoting the purity and importance of God's gift of marriage. The height and purity and importance of God's gift of marriage to humankind. And Paul breathed life and injected meaning into living an earthly life spent in the lower classes of society. He said to those who lived an earthly life as a slave, if you can get out of your servitude, do it. But if you can't, there's just no way. Don't see yourself as that earthly status. That is not who you are. You are God's child, and you have been spiritually free. So man cannot do anything to you. You are held safe and free in God's hands. You are a fellow heir of God's inheritance with the richest believer. And you have a home being prepared for you by Jesus himself. And let me tell you, if you want anybody preparing a home for you, it's Jesus. Amen? Do not see yourself as your earthly status. That is not who you are. That does not define you. See yourself by reality. See yourself by your heavenly status. And what is that? Prized. Prized by the creator of the universe. Prized by Almighty God as his child. Paul began to address the problem of socioeconomic division in the Corinthian church with his words in chapter 7 that God does not see any sort of difference in earthly status. He doesn't see it at all. He doesn't behave towards or judge anyone based on that. And therefore, the Corinthians must not either. And none of us here should ever do that. If God doesn't do it, we must not either. The Corinthian church also struggled greatly with spiritual and somewhat ethnic division as well. Here their self-centered arrogance is blatantly seen again. There were some in the church, mostly from a pagan Gentile background, who still struggled with their past lives of enjoying the raucous pagan temple celebrations where meat dedicated to idols and the Greek and Roman deities was being consumed. They specifically needed to stay away from those celebrations for their spiritual growth's sake. They could not have anything to do with it. Meanwhile, there were others in the church, most likely more of those in the higher socioeconomic statuses, who saw no problem with it 
since those deities didn't actually exist, which was true, but they were regularly then joining in with those celebrations. That was the issue. That was the problem. Talk about a big source of division, right? Paul rebuked those who saw no problem with it, telling them that they needed to see their brothers and sisters' spiritual well-being as being much more important than anything they thought they had the freedom to pursue. Again, it's nothing to do with you. Put the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters ahead of yourself. Stop being so self-centered. Beyond that, even though the pagan deities didn't exist, The demonic forces behind those false deities certainly did. And the meat was really being dedicated to those demonic sources. And when we covered that, we talked a lot about how the world likes to play around with different things that they don't think will affect them. And really they're tied to demonic sources. And how especially we as believers, we need to stay away from those things. If anything smells like it has nothing to do with Jesus, stay away from it. Therefore, freedom or not, spiritual freedom or not, all of the Corinthian believers were to stay away from those celebrations and meet that knowingly was connected to pagan deities because in reality they were messing around with demonic forces. We see once again Paul's very practical instruction to preserve the unity of the church above all else. Again, we see how extremely important church unity was to Paul, even above Christian liberty. And if you read through those, through those chapters that deal with that, he says, I would give up anything in this world if it meant it would preserve the unity of the church if it meant it would keep one of my brothers and sisters from stumbling in their walk with God. I hope we're seeing this common thread of division in the Corinthian church and how many times it's raised its ugly head in different ways. And how many times Paul has to instruct them about church unity time and time again. In chapter 11, we we see two more sources of division. It's starting to get exhausting, isn't it? It's like, why can't you guys get this through your head? It's it's starting to get exhausting. The first one in chapter 11 has to do with some of the women in the church casting off the gender roles that God created at the very beginning. Paul instructs them to get back on the right track and fulfill the God-given role that they had. He makes it clear that there is no inferiority or superiority between men and women but that God created them with different roles at the same time. The man's position, and I can 100% guarantee you this, is not a coveted one, ladies. And this is why. It's because men were created to be the representative. The man was created to be the representative of both his family and the church before Almighty God. It's not a coveted position. And as he was created to be the representative of both his family and the church, he will be held accountable by Jesus at the end for how he handled that position. Again, it's not a coveted position. 
the woman's position is also one of honor in that she does not have that burden of accountable responsibility. And so because of that, she is freed to help the man accomplish that role as best as possible without that hanging over her head. The second source of division in chapter 11 was the ugly raising of the head of socioeconomic discrimination again. It just keeps coming back time and time again, doesn't it? That one always seems to be one of the church's biggest struggles over the past 2,000 years as its toxicity spills over from the surrounding world, doesn't it? When the church would gather to observe the Lord's Supper at one of the more wealthy congregants' homes, that homeowner would handpick a few of his or her fellow wealthy congregants to join them in the dining room. There, those select few would receive the choicest and best portions of the meal, while the rest and inferior portions of the meal were pawned off on those in the lower classes, relegated out to the outer main area. Paul certainly had strong words towards those guilty of that discrimination. Horrible. There is absolutely no place for racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic discrimination in God's holy church bought with the cherished blood of Jesus Christ. He made it a point to reach out to people of every race, of every class. He talked to Phoenician people, thoroughly Gentile people. He talked to people, Samaritans, that the Jewish people hated. He talked to all kinds of different people, and he was accused time and time and time again of only wanting to hang out with the sinners, of only wanting to hang out with those that, those, unfortunately, in the religious, in the religious classes looked down upon. But that's our hope. That is our only hope. And so because it's his blood that bought this church, there is no place for any sort of discrimination whatsoever. And Paul will bring this up again in our passage this morning. Last in our review this morning was the division according to spiritual gifts. And we spent a a whole mini-series looking at each of those spiritual gifts that he listed. We'll discuss this more in the future. But there were many in the Corinthian church who thought they were better than other church members because they had what they thought were cooler spiritual gifts. Paul showed that all the spiritual gifts that God gives out are important to the building up of the church by placing those seemingly less miraculous gifts like understanding the Word of God and being able to wisely apply those teachings to everyday life situations, right alongside with those seemingly miraculous ones like prophecy, healing, working of miracles, and speaking in tongues. He placed them in the same exact list, in the same exact breath he listed all of them, all on the same level, and all beneficial and valuable to building up of the church. Whatever gifts the Corinthians and us today receive, again, is not up to us. 
It's completely up to the Holy Spirit. That's what we read at the very end of, of, of uh, the section on spiritual gifts here in chapter 12. That it's the Holy Spirit that divvies them out. It has nothing to do with us. And it's completely up to Him, His will, and what He deems best according to the mission that Jesus individually gives to us and what the Father will most effectively use in situations and in our hearts. It all works together perfectly. The Father is the one with the will and knows what's going to be most effective in changing somebody's heart and in building up of the church. The Son is the one who individually gives us the missions He wants and the jobs He wants us to do. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who equips us with spiritual gifts to do that mission that will fulfill the will of the Father. It all works perfectly together. Again, it has nothing to do with us, much less using any of these spiritual gifts for our own ego, but only for the building up of the church and the furthering of God's kingdom. That's all they're for. So we, we did our review, and secondly, don't worry, there's only two points this morning, is the, is the reiteration. It comes as no surprise to us then that once again Paul reiterates the unity of of the body of Christ in our verses within the general topic of division according to spiritual gifts and what our focus ultimately needs to be. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents. Nobody's going to judge you here. Look it up in the table of contents and then it's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 and we read for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ as one biblical scholar points out this verse serves as a writing tool as in that it provides a perfect summary for the rest of what we're going to read in chapter 12 you remember in high school, you had to write papers, college, you had to write papers, you had to have a thesis statement, right? A summary of everything you were going to write in the rest of that paper. This is the thesis statement of the whole rest of chapter 12, right here, the summary verse. In this verse, we see that Paul uses the human body as an illustration to explain what the unity of the church must be like. As the human body is one, the church must also be one in the same way. As the human body has many members, the church is made up of many members. But just as all of the members of the human body work together and rely on each other and need each other in order for the whole body to function, Christ's body or the church must be the same way. This is the beauty of the unity of the church. Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's beautiful, isn't it? That is the light to this world of church unity. Obviously, Jesus is the light, but this is the light of church unity to this dark world. As Paul will get into this further in the next verses, the body is not made up of 
all the same type of body part, right? We're not walking around like one big giant ear or one big giant eye or something like that, right? We all have... <laughs> that looked a little weird, huh? <laughs> We're all one body made up of many members, all working together and all relying on each other. It's our bodies are made up of all kinds and varied and different body parts all working together. When you're, when you're going to school, you learn about all the different systems of the human body, right? You have the cardiovascular system, you have the respiratory system, you have the uh, digestive system, all these different systems all made up of different organs and different types of blood vessels and different ways that the body works. All ways that all must work perfectly or where we're going to end up? Six feet under, right? So just as the human body is made up of all kinds and all kinds of varied systems and body parts, but they're all miraculously working together, just so happens to be, right? I say that tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, God is the one who perfectly planned it all together. Just as they all, they're all many and varied and different, but they all work together to make the body work, the church is made up of all different and varied and, and, and many different members that all make the church work together. In Paul's day, that unity was seen in the description of those believers who were ethnically and culturally Jewish and those believers who were ethnically and culturally everything else. It just all came under the umbrella of Gentile. Everything else. It was seen in the description of those enslaved in an earthly sense and those who were free in an earthly sense. None, none, none of that mattered in the eyes of God. And in fact, each background, as Paul notes here, brings its own unique view Every background brings its own unique understanding, its own unique skill set, and its own unique spiritual gifts that are entirely, wholly beneficial to the church. Have you ever thought about that? God created the church to not, He purposely created the church to not be made up of only one race or ethnicity, or culture, or, or religious background, or language. He purposely did that. God created the church purposely to be made up of every race, every ethnicity, every culture, and every language. And he did that in love. The church and our church needs needs people of every race, every ethnicity, every culture, and every language. We need it. The church and our church needs it. That's the beauty of the church. People from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different views and understandings coming together to function as one body of Christ. That's the way God created it. We need every, 
races and ethnicities and cultures and languages, view, understanding, skill set, strength, and gifts, because they're all entirely beneficial to the church. We need them to grow spiritually and to grow closer to the founder of the church and whose body we really are. In addition, God created the church to be made up of people from every earthly socioeconomic status. Every single one. The earthly status has no bearing on the church family, but er every earthly status brings its own unique view, its own unique understanding, its own unique skill set, strength, and gifts. Those who have little in a material sense bring the immeasurable wealth of faith, bring the immeasurable wealth of understanding and life experience and gifts that are entirely beneficial to the church's growth. Those who have more in a material sense must recognize who that is from. It's not your hard work, I'll tell you that. Who it's really from. And use it to generously go above and beyond to further God's kingdom. Because whose is it in reality? It's not yours. It's God's. He's only letting you steward it. He's only letting you borrow it for now. So how are you using it? Are you using it to further your own kingdom or are you using it to father his, further his kingdom? Remember that parable. And I know I'm being harder on those who have more. But remember that parable that Jesus gave. And he said, A man was going off to a far country to be crowned king over the country he left. And he comes back, and before he leaves, he calls three men to him, three servants, and he gives them some money to do something with. And then he goes off to be crowned king. And when he comes back, he brings each of them in front of himself, and he says, all right, what'd you do with what I gave to you? And the, per the man who he gave ten coins to said, well, I went out and I furthered your kingdom. I went out and I did what I knew you would want me to do with it, and it, I grew it ten times. So the king said, come, rejoice with me. You're going to be able to keep that, and, and you deserve a place of honor. The guy he gave five coins to said, look, I also went and took these five coins and did what you wanted me to do with them and furthered your kingdom. And the king also said, come, rejoice, you get to keep that and sit in a place of honor. The guy who hoarded it, his one coin, think of that. He only got one coin, and yet what he did with that one coin was he hoarded it for himself, and he didn't do anything with it. And the king said, you fool. You could have at least put it in a bank so that it could have gained interest. Somebody take that coin from that guy and give it to the guy that has ten coins. And the guy that had the one coin that had it taken away from him said, what? That's not fair. Why would you do that? And the king said, those who are given much are responsible for much and must be faithful with much. And since that guy was, he was rewarded much. Those 
that God, the, the, the funds that God gives to us are not ours. They are not ours to seek enjoyment and, and to have an easy life. They are given to us to further God's kingdom. And let that be a warning to, to those in the higher socioeconomic statuses who have been given much. If you have been given much, guess what is required of you? Much. Use it to further God's kingdom. But those in a higher socioeconomic status, if they're following what God wants them to do, they also have a wealth of faith and understanding and life experience and gifts that are entirely beneficial to the church's growth. I'm not knocking those who have more materially. I'm just saying God's word warns us and instructs us to use those, use those materials the way that he wants us to use them. But God gave the church as a unified body. And that includes those from a lower socioeconomic status and that includes those from a higher socioeconomic status. And we all work together as one body, doing what God wants us to do and being faithful with what God has given to us. We are all needed. Let that sink in. You, every single person sitting here and every person who will watch this online or listen to this online later, you are all needed. We all have a place in Christ's body and we all have a role to play. We all have something to do. We all have value. We all have something to give. Why? Because as verse 13 says, we all make up Christ's body. And because of that, He all has a part and He has a job for all of us. He has a part and a job for all of us. He has something for every single one of us to do and to help the body function properly. Not only are we all one in faith and baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 13 and is very clear about, but we are all one in function and purpose. We all have to rely on each other in order for the body to take another step forward. I'm going to say that again. We all have to rely on each other in order for the body to take another step forward. Imagine if the brain sent a nerve signal to the foot and leg and said, take a step. And the foot and leg said, nah, I'm good. I don't want to. I'm good right here. No matter what the brain did, the body would not be able to physically move forward, would it? Unless all the parts, all the members work together to make that happen. I'm going to step on some toes here. None of us, thank you, Herbert. I got the okay from Herbert. All right. None of us can be content to just show up on a Sunday morning and that be it. None of us can just show up on a Sunday morning when we feel like it, throw that in there, and that be it. There is a place for that in our spiritual growth but we all must get past that. We all must grow past that. We all must get involved in the body of Christ. 
we all must do something. Not just sit here and say, well, that was probably the worst sermon I've ever heard, and leave. Not just come and sit here, but do something. Have a purpose. Play a role. Be a part of the body. Be a part of the body's function and purpose. Believe me, there is plenty of work and service to go around. There is plenty of work and service to be done for the church's spiritual growth and to reach out with the gospel into our community. Plenty of it. You don't need to worry that it will all be done. There will always be more. And as we see what spiritual gifts God has given to us, take a look at that. Don't just say, "Ah, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give. Well, have you honestly just sat somewhere with the Word of God and talking with God and say, God, show me what spiritual gift you've given to me? Or what more than one spiritual gift you've given to me? He will show you. He's not just going to say, that's nice, and I'm not going to do that. He's obviously not going to do that. He's obviously going to show you. Ask him what spiritual gift you have. So as we see what spiritual gifts God has given to us, and and also under that, what unique strengths that that we naturally have, what skill sets we naturally have, what interests we naturally have that we gravitate towards, what understandings and skill sets God has given to us, what, what understandings and views maybe our race or our ethnicity or our background or our socioeconomic status or our past gives to us that is entirely beneficial to the church? When we see all of that and we see what individual jobs God has given for us to do and we rely on each other and work as one, we will witness a supernatural moving forward of the Holy Spirit and a supernatural moving forward of our church. Can I get an amen? Unlike anything before. The witness of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be magnified as a blinding light into this dark and divided world. People in our community will catch wind of what's going on here. Something's going on over at that fellowship church over there. Something's going on over there. They'll catch wind of what's going on here and they'll want to become a part of it. The proof of the life-changing power of the gospel will be backed up by the unity of the life-changing power of it as Christ's one body. So, I prayed at the beginning of this message that we would all leave this place as changed people. And I pray that that indeed will be so. Let us see our body as one. With one purpose and one mission, and one vision. And let us live that view out practically, physically, and usefully by looking at how God has blessed us and who we are, who He's created us to be, what gifts He's given to us, and what He wants us to do.
And let us see, let us witness, let us marvel and be in awe at what powerful things he will do in us, with us, and through us. And let us be in awe and marvel at the powerful things he will do in, through, and with our church as one in our community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these just two verses that are so powerful and give us so much. Give us so much power and give us so much meaning and reveal so much truth to us. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place changed people and that we would take this message to heart and, to, and, and later today we'll find a quiet place with your word and have an honest conversation with you about who we are who you created us to be, what unique understandings and views and backgrounds we bring to this church, and ask you, if we don't know already, ask you, God, show me what spiritual gifts you've given to me because I know you've given me at least one. And if I don't know what it is, reveal that to me. And then, Lord, give me the courage and the strength and the power to do that, to use it. And let us all seek what mission you have given to us too, as we all work together as one body to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring the hope and peace and joy of salvation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to this hurting and dark and divided world. And I pray all these things in the powerful name of the risen King. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.